Hello, folks, and welcome to the Elephant Feast, where we are looking at the complexities of life, faith, and relationships one bite at a time. I am your host, Jordan Johnson, and you've been invited to the table, so pull up a seat and let's dig in. All right, folks, I hope everyone is having a great day today. It's a beautiful, chilly day out here in Northeast Ohio, and it's looking like it's going to be a great day. And for those of you who are just joining us, we are talking about the story arc of Scripture. Uh, And essentially, we're asking the question, if we were to examine the Bible the way that a writer would examine a story and breaking down the working parts and all that, would it help us understand what's going on? Would we walk away with a better understanding of what God is trying to do through Scripture? And that's the curiosity, and we're having a lot of fun with this series. We've walked through this setting so far, and we've walked through the conflict, and today we are looking at the rising action in our story arc. And so if you guys are ready to go, let me check back here. Yeah, yeah, Fritz is in his spot and ready to go. For those of you guys who don't know, um, I have decided to employ a tool so a little bit of background. I have always loved podcasts as long as I can remember, um, which makes me sound really old. But I've always wanted to do a podcast. And so if you are listening today, uh, thank you for being part of this journey. It has been a long time before I've actually had the bravery to attempt a podcast. And a lot of that is due to Fritz. And Fritz He represents um, the anxiety I deal with on a pretty regular basis. He also represents this thing called imposter syndrome. And if you've never heard this term before, congratulations. Um, You might hear it later, but if you're not, awesome. You're you're doing all right. But imposter syndrome essentially is uh, an aspect of anxiety that you always feel like you are where you do not belong. Almost as if uh, you're hoping people don't see through your disguise. Almost like you're an imposter. And I have had to deal with this um, little thing for a long time now. And I've had some success in some days and not so much the other days. But one of the things that I've come to learn is that you cannot eliminate imposter syndrome entirely. But you can acknowledge it, you can honor it, and it's going to take up space in your life, but it does not have to take up the amount of space that it says it needs to take up. So if you hear me referring to Fritz, that's just me talking to myself. Um, And he's in the corner and he doesn't get the talk, um, but he's going to sit here and watch me make a podcast, which is a little bit of a victory in of itself. But with that being said, Let's get back to what we are here to actually talk about, the rising action of story. Okay, so what is rising action? What is in why what makes it important? And where do we see this thing in the Bible? Well, let's break it down. So the rising action is the biggest chunk of a story. The rising action begins where the conflict of the story pushes the characters. Right then it moves into the rising action. And you are in the rising action all the way up until you get to the climax. So everything between the conflict and the climax is the rising 
action. And so the rising action is when the characters begin their journey into achieving their goal. It's the beginning of the quest. It's when they take that first step of doing something about the conflict within the story. And if you guys remember, the goal of the story is often what the setting is, excuse me, rather what was lost from the setting. And so in the case of the Bible, what was lost was that humanity had to be exiled from the garden out of a close and intimate relationship with God. And so that then becomes the goal. And so the rising action is the beginning of humanity and God to achieve the goal of returning to the garden. All right, so in the rising action, the main character should face many obstacles and challenges as they pursue their goal, thus building the plot. And one of the other ways this works is this is how the audience gets to know the characters. We, we, must, we must never forget, if a story does not have an audience, the story does not exist. Okay, and so the rising action is a key piece of building a relationship with the audience because the rising action is going to show how the characters think. It's going to show where their values are. It's going to be showing how they process and how they make decisions. And it lets the audience know who they are as it develops their character. And their reactions to these ever-increasing odds, they are going to produce a strong emotional response from the audience. So pacing and forward movement are very important in the rising action. You can't go too fast. You can't go too slow. Because the story ultimately serves to move the audience on their own next step in their story. So that's why pacing is important. This is why you need these obstacles because ultimately a story is being told to affect the audience into their own movement. The rising action should possess enough strength to elevate all story events and elements beyond their potential level, even if they are seemingly unrelated and randomly put in. Okay, this is, a, this is a key thing, especially when you're dealing with something like the Bible, because as we talked about, the Bible is a larger story composed in, and, and made up of a bunch of smaller individual stories. And so the rising action for the entire story arc needs to be strong enough to lift all the smaller, seemingly disconnected events from the smaller um, individual stories and to bring it into something bigger bigger. And this goes back to, if you guys remember when we talked about an orienting story, this is how this works. The rising action essentially raises the tide of everything else and it's, it's responsible for moving things upward, which is going to help us build to a more impactful climax, but it's also going to support everything else going around it. This is, I guess in a way, this is like the structural pillars and the scaffolding um, that holds up the story, and it's built on this rising action. And what else? Okay, so, but this is where we learn about the characters. Okay, we talked about that. Um, 
But this is also where we are discovering more about the initial themes that are set up within the story. So if you remember, we talked about in the conflict and we had that whole idea. We talked about Genesis 1 through 11 is the prologue. And in the prologue, you get introduced to almost all the themes of Scripture. So what the rising action is going to be doing is it's going to be taking those introduced themes and it's going to be exercising them. It's going to be exploring them. It's going to be repeating them. It's going to be subverting them and all sorts of things. And so you are getting to know the characters, but also you're getting to know the themes that the story is trying to highlight and illuminate as the events play out. And then finally, the rising action raises the stakes. It keeps us invested in the story and makes us want to keep reading to find out how the story will evolve and eventually resolve. So we talked about that already. As the themes are getting exercised, as the themes are getting fleshed out, and as the characters are developing, you still need the stakes to be raised in order to maintain that pacing, maintain that tension all the way, because you want that tension to be addressed in the climax, but it does not want to be um, addressed too soon. And one of the ways you see that is there's going to be this recurring question. So remember, we said the goal is for humanity to return to the garden. And so a oft-repeated question, an implicitly repeated question throughout all these stories is, is this the guy or is this the event or is this the story that's going to bring us back to the garden? Okay, we see that with Noah. Is he going to be the guy that fixes everything? Story plays out. No. Okay. Uh, shoot. Well, what about Moses? Okay. Moses, man, he looks like a good candidate. Um, is he the guy that's going to fix everything and, and bring us back to the garden? Story plays out. No. Oh, okay. Oh, oh King David. Oh, this is definitely, this, this definitely is the guy. This must be the Messiah. Story plays out. No. Oh, so you see that as these stories are, are, are running their course and being completed, the stakes it, are still being raised because now it's just another disappointment, another letdown, or an, and the question is still unanswered, and yet the story continues. And, and as I said, typically the rising action, this is going to occupy the most amount of space. Whether it's a story, a novel, or a movie, the majority of the content is going to be in the rising action. So that's what it is. That's the key elements of what makes a good rising action. But we do want to ask the question, so why is it important? I mean, if, if you don't understand why it's important at this point, well, okay, it's a podcast. We have more time. Let's explore it a little bit further. So the reason why it's important is that boring characters make for a boring story, and nothing is more boring than characters who never make mistakes. And the audience... They want to, they need to witness the main character going through real life trials and tribulations that they can relate to and dealing with the consequences of their actions and facing death, dealing with loss. Part of what the magic, if you will, or part of what makes storytelling so powerful is that in the rising action, it offers a portal almost, for the audience to put themselves in the shoes of the characters. And so this is where the mistakes actually 
have a high level of importance. And it's not always failure. Sometimes it's wins and sometimes it's a success. It's it's all in there. Anything that is native to the human experience is going to be incorporated into the rising action. Because sometimes we see in the biblical narrative, there's like major victories. Okay, if you look at the end of Joshua and Joshua 23, uh, that's a major victory. They have officially arrived at the promised land. If you remember, the promised land was the main goal that the the, uh, exodus out of Egypt was all about. God says, take my people out and I'm going to take you to a place where I want you to be. That's the promised land. Joshua 23, they're there. They arrive. And it's like if the Bible ended at the end at the book of Joshua, then you would walk away thinking, oh, wow, that was a, a successful story. Look at that. And it had a nice ending. But of course, it doesn't end there. The story keeps on going. And even the wins and successes of the story often fall to common mistakes of just humans being human. And the rising action, this also represents the greatest investment of effort on the parts of the authors of Scripture. Okay, details matter. And in the Bible, there is no wasted space. Okay, Uh, the biblical writers, the authors, they had to be very specific and careful with the words that they were using because scrolls was a limited resource. You know, you can't just crumple it up and start over again. Each inspired word of scripture was carefully chosen, edited, and finessed in order to communicate a story that was important for the audience to hear. Remember when we talked about um, John Golden Gay, the um, biblical scholar, and he says that God allows the biblical writers to write in a way that's natural to them, and he works with how they communicate as he works to communicate what he is trying to get them to see. Okay, it's this really amazing dance between the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the creativity and wisdom from God blessed to the authors as they express the story in written word. And that's why the rising action is important. That's one of the reasons why I'm a big fan of this section of the story arc. And speaking of story arcs, there is another story arc out there. I mean, there's lots out there. We've talked about this, but Joseph Campbell, um, he developed a story arc called The Hero's Journey. And it's a little bit more complex um, than the story arc that we're using. Um, and and for, so for instance, for his section that is normally considered the rising action, he has five different distinctive points that he uses to describe the rising action. And I thought it'd be fun just to kind of run through these things so that you can see what to, uh, so that you can just see like what a rising action looks like. So uh, if we look at the hero's journey, he has it broken down the five different beats. The first one, um, he calls it the refusal of the call. Okay, the, the refusal of the call. The hero feels the fear of the unknown and tries to turn away from the adventure. However, briefly, Alternately, another character may express the uncertainty and danger ahead. 
So when we look at the Bible, where do we see this? Well, we see this um, like with the character of Gideon. And uh, we see this with Moses. Moses like, don't send me. And God's like, no, I'm going to send you. And Moses is like, no, don't send me. Okay. Um, when they sent the 12 spies to spy out uh, the land at the beginning of the book of Joshua, the 10 spies, they, they refused the call. Um, so you can kind of see these different key elements here. Like, oh, yeah, I see that there. Uh, in Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey, one of the other things they have is something called meeting with the mentor. The mentor comes across a seasoned traveler. Excuse me, not the mentor. The hero comes across a seasoned traveler of the world who gives him or her training equipment or advice that will help them on the journey. Or the hero reaches within to a source of courage and wisdom. Now, when we see this in the Bible, typically God is the mentor. He shows up and gives instructions like with Abraham and Moses. Um, but also we see it in people too. Um, Rahab, the prostitute who, who sheltered the two spies in the book of Joshua. That's definitely a meeting of the mentor. Um, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. Um, at one point, he's like, Moses, dude, you got to delegate. You are overwhelmed. You're overworked. That's a meeting of the mentor. Um, ooh, big picture, the prophets function as mentors to the Israelites. Okay, so that's a big one. The prophets are almost always trying to give advice or give caution, give counsel to avoid certain things. That's definitely a mentor interaction. Um, one of the other things in the hero's journey of the rising action is something called crossing the threshold. And uh, so at the end of Act 1, the hero commits to leaving the ordinary world, that's Joseph Campbell's language for the setting of the story, the ordinary world, and entering a new region or condition with unfamiliar rules and values. Okay, so crossing the threshold. So definitely see this when the Israelites cross the Red Sea leaving behind Egypt and moving into the next step of their journey. Um, also in the book of Joshua, when the Israelites crossed the Jordan River, um, any moment where a covenant is made is a crossing of the threshold moment. So Noah, Noah Moses, Abraham, David, okay? And eventually in there, the new covenant with Jesus. All these moments represent crossing the threshold. Um so just, it's, once again, it's all there. And once you kind of learn to look for it, then you're going to start to see it. And then now you have something else to do when it comes to reading the Bible. Okay, let's continue on. Tests, allies, and enemies. Still looking at the hero's journey. The hero is tested and sorts out allegiances in the special world. Okay, so the book of Job, the book of Daniel, um, Esther, you know, judges, pretty much... The majority of the Old Testament, this this kind of thing is going on in the background all the time. Tests, allies, and enemies where you're trying to figure out who's for you, who's against you, and you're dealing with the obstacles along the way. And then the, the final step on the hero's journey within the rising action is called the approach or the approach to the inmost cave. Ooh, very mysterious. The hero and his newfound allies prepare for the major challenge in the special world. And, and so this is kind of leading us. This is the part that happens like right before the climax. But it shows up in different places. Um, so once again, uh, the prophets, they, they function really heavily in this particular element. And I would even submit to you the book of Leviticus. Yes, the book of Leviticus functions 
in this particular moment. Because if you look at the end of the book of Numbers, and you have the tabernacle built, and there's like this little cliffhanger going on. Is it the book of Numbers? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Excuse me. It's the book of Exodus. The end of book of, at the end of the book of Exodus, when the tabernacle is built, there's this verse that says, and the God's presence was in the tabernacle, but nobody could enter in. Okay, and that's a major problem. And then right after that, you get the book of Leviticus, which is giving the the rules, the process, the routine, the liturgy that you need to do in order to enter into that presence of God. And then you see that at the end of the book of Leviticus, that problem is now resolved and people are able to enter into the presence of God. So this is a really cool case where an entire book um, not only is a point of crossing the threshold, but is this representation of the approach to the goal which is being reunited in the presence of God back at the garden. Okay, so why, why, Jordan, is this part of the story so important to you? Why is it your favorite part? Man, I am so glad you asked me that. And I'll tell you why. Because it's messy. Okay, for, for many years, I, growing up as a Christian, still kind of wrestled with the performance to perfection aspect that, honestly, I don't think anyone ever explicitly told me something like that. I think I just just kind of absorbed it in the atmosphere of the environment I grew up in. So I don't point my finger or blame anyone. I just think... I was very sensitive to the environment I was at, and, and performance became really important to me. And then, of course, um, not being very helpful, but in children's church, we focus on the successful parts of the Bible stories. I grew up with children's Bibles, and I grew up with very well-intentioned and very thoughtful teachers who thought it best to teach the admirable parts of the Bible in that this is who you want to be like. Okay. Um, you know, so when we did Samson, we did the story of Samson, but then we kind of, you know, edited out some parts and then ended with him, um, conquering the Philistines. I remember stuff like that. Um, you don't necessarily get the ending of the book of Jonah. Um, they just kind of stop at that part when, he says, okay, God, I'm going to listen to you. And then he goes and, and does his thing. And everyone's like, oh, wow, Jonah, that's amazing. And the book ends. Now, granted, the book ends abruptly as it is. But even in the children's storybook Bible, um, it's going to be ending a lot more abrupt. And so when I've learned to embrace the mess, to not be scared of the mess of the rising action, because it's really it's really messy, folks. There's some really jacked up stuff within the Bible that you can find in the rising action. And a lot of people are shocked and offended, as I was too. But now I've come to a point where there's something to be learned instead of something to be hidden or explained away. So I love the mess. And because that also really helps me understand the point of the Bible, the point of Jesus, the point of redemption, salvation, all of that. 
Okay, because you're seeing people trying to figure things out as they go, and they're making mistakes, and they are hurting people. And what you're also going to see, though, is that God's plan still continues, even though it seems like humanity and the Israelites and the characters of the story are doing everything they can to hinder it. And you don't really see that until you appreciate how messy the people are in the Bible. You know, I, th I think John Walton, uh, a biblical scholar and professor at Wheaton University, he has this to say um, when it comes to embracing the mess of the Old Testament. He says, what's more important or more important than what the characters do is what the narrator does with the characters and what God is doing through the characters. And then what you're going to see is that the audience is seeing what a dynamic faith to God looks like. Once again, the stories in Scripture always serve to move the audience on their own next step. And if there is no mess, then there's nowhere for the audience to move from. And then another reason why it's my favorite is that it helped me become more respectful of the original audience. Okay, um, Bible scholar Tim Gombus has said this. He says that if the way you read the Bible or your theology requires Jews to be the bad guys so that Christianity looks better, then you have terrible theology. I have never forgotten it, having heard him said that, because it's true. And we use the rising action as a good way of saying, wow, look how messed up they are. Aren't we lucky that we're better than them? But no. If that's not the point. The point is that they have invested a significant amount of time in their relationship with God, and you're seeing all of it laid out in front of you, and it is messy, to be sure. But yet, they are trying to figure out who God is as he's revealing himself to them. <sighs> You know, when we look at the traditional four-beat um, story arc, you know, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, where would you put the rising action if you had those four sections? Would you put it in the redemption? Um, I guess kind of because there's parts of that going on there, but it's really too complex to fit in that. Well, is it in the, so it must be in the fall. So everything from Genesis all the way up till the book of Matthew it's all just fall and a waste of time and, and you know, useless? No, absolutely not. This is one of the reasons why I want to use a story arc that has a rising action because it allows us to see the story in its proper place where we can honor it as it is and not use it as a, ooh, I'm glad I'm not like then. Because when you think like that, you're playing a part of that rising action. So... I think for me as a Protestant, it is helpful and wise for me to take the moment and realize that the Jewish people have been reading the Bible a lot longer than I have. They have been wrestling with the text longer than I have, and I might disagree with them about their conclusions, but it does not mean that I can't learn anything from them, and it does not mean that I have some sort of superiority complex because 
etc., whatever, okay? Which I don't. That's what Fritz is there for. He keeps that from happening. Okay. So let's talk about where we see this show up in scripture. Um, and so what I want to do is kind of run through some of the different storytelling and rhetoric tools that's going to show up in the rising action. Because the rising action, this is also where, uh, we talked about this, the biblical writers get to be the most creative in how they're expressing the story as it's unfolding. And so you see it through a lot of different ways, such as revenge and forgiveness stories, stories about slaying dragons, okay? Spoiler alert, David and Goliath, okay? There's stories like tragedy stories, and tragedy stories are interesting. It's a story that's built around an exceptional calamity that stems from a protagonist's wrong choice. See, tragic heroes are not villains. They are essentially good people who are afflicted by some tragic flaw of character. And they are in the rising action all over the place. Like Samson, King Saul, Cain of Cain and Abel, King David. All of them have tragic story arcs in that they do have a peak at some point. But ultimately, all these stories end in decline. And the story is resolved at the end of that decline. But then you also have comedy stories, okay? And we're not talking about humor and sarcasm, although there's a lot of that in the Bible, which is really fun to explore. We'll save some time for that later. But a comedy, it's similar to a tragedy, but it's kind of marked by a U-shaped plot, okay? So the character experiences a series of mishaps that lead to brokenness and misery. So that's the downward spiral. Um... But then the character overcomes obstacles until they arrive back at the top. So a U-shaped, okay? That's a comedy frame story. And so we're looking at the story of Ruth, the story of Esther, the story of Daniel, Job, Joseph, all these characters. They experience a significant decline. But then as the story continues, they are brought back up the slope to either where they were to begin with or perhaps at a higher level than where they were to start with. Um, One of my favorite expressions in the rising action is something called satire. Yes, satire is in the Bible. Okay, and a satire is a story that exposes human vice or folly by addressing a person's attitude, characteristic, ideas, or beliefs indirectly. Okay, kind of like a sideways, passive calling out. Um, So where do we see that? Well, the parables that Jesus tells are very satirical which is awesome, okay? I want to talk about that later, not today. Um, The entire book of Jonah is a satirical work, and we can explain that once again. If you guys want to get deeper into these um, literary breakdowns, let me know. Um, I think that'd be a lot of fun to explore. But then another one I want to talk about is this idea of misunderstanding God. So when we go back to the rising action, it's not about making sure you're succeeding all the time because part of the way you grow, part of the way you mature, and part of the way the audience identifies with you is through screwing up. And so there's this repeated theme of misunderstanding God that shows up. So where does that show up? Look, a great example of this is the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. So if you guys know the story, 
Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea and they are now on the Sinai Peninsula and they are traveling to Mount Sinai, which is where God met Moses at the burning bush. So Moses is bringing his people back to God. And then he goes up on the mountaintop, okay, and he's hanging out there for a while and everyone is saying, hey, where is Moses? And then the golden calf incident happens. So a couple things here. Um, as modern readers of scripture, we have the extra work and burden of having to do the homework to help understand how the ancient audience would have understood the story. A couple things here. God was on top of the mountain, right? And if you read the story, it says that a storm was settling on top of the mountain. That is a visual representation of God's presence. And in the ancient world, that was a common way of talking about the gods. They dwell on the mountaintops and not just God, but another God, deity known in that region, Baal, is also said to have shown up as a storm cloud. Okay? Interesting. Remember, we're not told this, but let's just... Let's just think with our human brains about a human reaction. If a population has spent 430 years, like the Israelites had in Egypt, what about their own distinct culture and stories would they have remembered if they've been in a different culture for such a long time? And this is part of where the misunderstanding God comes from. It's this idea that in the Old Testament, you get the sense that the Israelites don't exactly know what they're dealing with either, and they're trying to figure it out along the way. So when we get to the golden calf, they're looking up at the mountain to say, ooh, I've seen that before. I've heard that before. Um, well, that okay, that's our God. We need to do something. And if you remember the, the conflict of the golden calf story, it's not that the Israelites hated God. It's that they were wondering where Moses was. Moses was their guide. He was up on the mountaintop and they were saying, I don't think he's coming down. So we need a new guide to bring us to God. Once again, I think, okay, I was not there. And then, so they get this the golden calf that shows up. Now in the ancient world, there are some depictions of Baal riding on a calf almost as a way of a um, transport thing. And so this golden calf incident, you could read this as, oh, those dumb Israelites, they're giving up already. They're right there and they're quitting. Oh, they're so dumb. Oh, once again, let's check that attitude, check that behavior. They are lost. They are defenseless. They have no home. And the guy that was leading them went up, disappeared, and they don't know where he is and yet they see the storm cloud on top of a mountain. So they know that they are in the presence of a God. All they know is that this guy's name is Yahweh and he brought them out of Egypt. But now they're also in the home territory of Baal. Okay, in the ancient world, the different deities, they had their homeland that they had to be stuck with, you know. And so then you have this, uh, the golden calf. Now, there are consequences. I'm not excusing their behavior. There are consequences that they did sin. But we need to understand that it's a little bit more complicated than just, oh, those silly Israelites, when will they ever learn? Okay, that's enough on that one. 
Um, another one. In the book of Joshua, you have the story of Jephthah, who is one of the judges. Um, the Spirit of God descends upon him, and he is successful. He also makes this really dumb vow, and he says that, God, I want to honor you, and so, you know, whatever comes out of my house, the first thing that walks out of my house, I'm going to offer as a burnt offering to you. Now, you know, sidebar, in the ancient world, it was very common for the family and the family animals, the farm animals, to be living within the same dwelling. Okay, so it's actually not that absurd for him to say something like that. But as he's walking out to his house, what's the first thing that walks out the door? His daughter. Oh my gosh. Idiot. Why would you say something like that? Because even then he's going, why God would you have this happen? I literally said this is what I was going to do. And she walks out. Why do you want me to do this? He's misunderstanding God because he made a dumb vow. Long story short, he sacrifices his daughter as a burnt offering because he doesn't understand God, even though God is using him to accomplish God's plan. This is why the rising action is so dadgum interesting. Okay. I had some other stuff, but I'm going to pause right there. Only to say this. The reason why we have the rising action is because it helps elevate the climax and it makes it that much more amazing. And as the rising action is repeating the themes of human brokenness and humans ability to become like God, to act like God, to, to win every now and again, all of this struggle is leading up to a point and there is on the horizon a climax that is coming that is going to take the every all the hard work that the rising action did to help you understand the situation to help you understand what the stakes are and when the climax shows up it's going to be amazing not just because the climax of itself but because the story is working to build up to that. And if you don't have rising action, you don't have a climax that's worth living for. You do not have a climax that's going to move you into the next step. So for us as students of the Bible, may we take the rising action seriously. If you grew up like I did, where you have always known the gospel, Take the time and work through the rising action. Because there's going to be times when the gospel seems really boring. Because it's what you've always known. And it's probably the fact that you've always known it of why it becomes so boring. Now, now God is, is good, okay? And, and, and praise God for the people with the boring story, okay? There are parts of my life that I would not like to repeat, Okay, and some parts of my life that I wish were a little more boring than others. But the rising action, man. Once someone taught me how to see it for what it is and what it looks like to wrestle with scripture, man, it oh, it made the Bible so exciting to me. And not because they're like inventing new stuff. They're just teaching me to see what was all ready 
there. And that's what I want to offer to anyone listening to this. There's a lot of really cool, ridiculous, weird, mysterious, ancient, fascinating things within the Bible. We've just gotten so used to hovering around the climax that we've lost that emotional weight. And so, raise a glass and give a toast to rising action. One of the unsung heroes of storytelling. And, uh... Yeah, that's why it's my favorite. So we're going to be continuing with the climax next episode as we continue our journey through the story arc of Scripture here at the Elephant Thank you so much for joining. I will see you guys next time. Peace.